So I coppice the tree in my own mind. This is a personal thought experiment. I actually cut the permaculture tree down. <laughs> Authentic regeneration always involves disrupting, breaking old habits and patterns and get, getting rid of kind of superficial fluff and cutting back or getting back to the core of something, the, the essential core of something or the originating impulse of something and then letting fresh tissue grow from that place. The seed from which permaculture germinated, like permaculture's originating impulse, was um, yeah, this compelling, radical, beautiful, profound idea of becoming deeply re-immersed and enmeshed and nested in the ecologies we're part of and moving back into a, a space of providing our own needs locally in community interdependence in a way that, that enhances ecosystem health. Working with a living system is incompatible with working with a non-living approach. It's fascinating how our conversations over the last few years have, have seeped into my own design process, probably without me knowing. Greetings, everybody. This is Dan Palmer welcoming you back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, which is part of the Making Permaculture Stronger project, which is all about regenerating permaculture design process together. What that means is cultivating awareness and reflection about our permaculture design processes in a way that supports them to become ever more alive so that the quality impact and integrity of our work and projects in the world is massively enhanced. And today in episode 46, I'll be sharing the first conversation I've shared with my dear friend and colleague, Javin Kirby Banakovich from allpointsdesign.ca based over in Canada. This is an interview that was recorded back in April. It was actually Javin interviewing me. He was um, wanted to do so for his YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the show notes. Hopefully you find it useful. Thanks so much to Jevin for, for, for the interview. And I look forward to getting him on the show where I'll ask him questions and we can learn more about the fascinating work he does in a future episode. Okay, enjoy and I'll check in with you again at the end. Hey everybody, John Bernakovich here with All Points Design. That's allpointsdesign.ca. And today I'm, I'm really excited. I get to talk to a pen pal, a friend, a video pal, I guess that's a thing. Dan Palmer of Very Edible Gardens, uh, holistic decision making. How many other how many other labels do we get? Like how many other enterprises are you involved in? There's like four main ones, and a fifth is on the way. Okay, so you, let's try this again. And welcome Dan Palmer, who's involved in Very Edible Gardens making permaculture stronger, holistic decision-making, living design process, designing for life. And that's, that's the main ones. I'm really excited. And Dan and I were just uh, kind of giggling to ourselves, really sort of giddy, like the first day of school giddy, because Dan and I have been talking on and off for two years or three years. I'm not, I'm not sure. Neither am I, but something like that. Probably three. It's got a, is it? I don't know. Oh, it would be because it was after the very first online Rex that Darren Doherty put together. And that's right. You had heard some of my stuff and you had reached out and we had a funny moment because you were like, oh, I love your stuff. And I'm like, I took most of it from you. <laughs> it's probably why you like it. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I was and, I was indirectly complimenting myself, which was which is the way to do it, really. <laughs> like if you're going to compliment yourself, take the longest road possible. Yeah. yeah. And what. What I discovered, which was really interesting to me, was that 
you and I both think very similarly about not about anything particularly in life, but about life in general, about the the road of of you know, I like to say this a lot about um, pondering the witchness of the why, about thinking about thinking, and maybe about thinking once more. Would, do you think that's where we connect, or is there something else that you think we connect on? That's, that's the key aspect of, yeah, like re- re- reflecting on the, f- the frames through which we're seeing and, and acting and so on. So, yeah, kind of getting a little meta and then bringing that back to enrich the, the day-to-day. I'd say we share a like getting deeply into something like holistic management being a case in point, you know, and, and getting a, getting a running fluency with it and then, then sort of using it to fly off in a, in, in, in whatever directions we like, you know, like, so, so getting grounded in, the, in this or that approach and then working it into our, our, our particular style. Mm-hmm. And we've both done that with various things in, in overlapping ways, which has been, a, been something that's been fun to explore over the years. Yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of tapestry weaving. It's a bit of finding a really incredible color that we both find, that we both experience its original origin, and then how we weave it. We might dye it a little bit differently. We might bring it back in, but we both see the essence of that color, and we both get really excited about that color. And then, as you're weaving, you're comparing notes and and speaking back and forth, and that's been probably the richest part of my experience with holistic management's decision-making, which is really values-based decision-making, making decisions based upon your values to get to an objective, which is a value instead of a thing, and comparing it with people who have taken it deeply into their lives, which I think are, are many, but those who've then taken it into a level of facilitation and training and helping others is probably a bit fewer. I don't know if, I don't know if, I, I think I might have met one other person who has made this a big focus, but still is not a main a driver in their life, let's say. What's been your experience? Mm. Do you find a lot of people who do this type of work? Uh, it's it's probably similar. I've, I've I've had like two, three, four at the most people that have gotten excited about enough and and have have gotten a feel for applying it to their own lives to to express a desire and in some cases to actually start working with others or run a few workshops in a fairly um, small scale way so far. Mm-hmm. So yeah, similar similar experience. Right. Cool. Let's let's rewind the clock back to when you gave us the laundry list of all the incredible projects you're involved with. Uh, and by laundry list, I mean like the best laundry you could ever have. This is <laughs> um, can we go point by point and can you give us a quick synopsis of what that project title entails mm, sure. um, and kind of go through that? Because I'd like to give folks a sense of, of the true Renaissance man that you are and, and pro- probably polygot. Um, to give folks a sense, because you are a multifaceted human in the best sense of the word. Sure, no problems. I'm, I'm, I'll just inject one um, in front, actually, which is perma, Permablitz, which is, because I was just thinking, what was, what's, what was the order in time? And Permablitz happened first after I initially got into permaculture, and there's a website, permablitz.net, and it's a global network of place-based groups of people that come together to voluntarily design and create permaculture gardens and each other's yards uh, and that that fed into the founding of very edible gardens in 2009 which is a permaculture design company we also have an educational component and we also build and install vegetable gardens chicken systems stuff like that so that's been my bread and butter for the duration really ever since it started and that's still going strong we have like eight a team of eight and that's melbourne based uh, and then along the way as i as i got into designing i started to bump up against 
some opportunities for, for doing it better, let's say. And um, as I started to ask questions about those, initially I, I attributed them to my own, you know, something I, was, I wasn't getting or I'd missed or I hadn't read or whatever. Um, but after a while I realized, no, I'm, I think I'm doing justice to everything I've learned and read. There's something else going on here. And so I, I kind of found a few cracks or areas that weren't, weren't working so well for me. And that, that led into a couple of things. One is the project Making Permaculture Stronger, which is, must be coming up to four years, three and a half, four years old. So that involves a podcast and written a lot of content. There's like a hundred thousand word manuscript underway about that. And that's, that's been really fun to share my journey, my adventure with permaculture design process with a whole lot of other people and that's going strong. And so that helped me articulate and kind of hone in on what, what are some of these issues and, and why do I feel like we're using a process that creates a less than ideal result and what would it mean to understand what's happening there, unpack that. So I've been doing that and making permaculture stronger. It also led that, that initial questioning led me to what I call holistic decision-making initially through Alan Savory's holistic management approach a new framework for decision-making, which as you said earlier, is a values, values-based approach to decision-making, um, takes in the entire context and uh, resource base and so on. And um, after working with that for some time and getting a lot of use out of that, applying to first variable gardens and then my family, then myself, and then all, pretty much everyone I work with one way or another, um, I kind of developed in my, in my own directions as we, we alluded to earlier. Use, I use the, the name holistic decision-making to, to refer to where I've taken it and I've integrated other flavors in as well. So uh, that's, that's, what is that, number three or four? And then living design process. Something similar happened actually. In this case, I got deeply enthralled and enchanted by the work of Christopher Alexander, who's a radical architect who spent his life. He actually started with a similar question to permaculture, which was how do we enhance life in the world? How do we partner with an enhanced life in the world? And he went straight into the process question and, and made all sorts of interesting discoveries about the nature of the, the how we go about things and how, how that impacts the, how much life is in the result. Um, and so that, that led me eventually to what I'm calling living design process, the underlying idea being what would it mean for a design process, the processes of design and creation we use to bring form into the world, whether it's gardens, farms, buildings, businesses, whatever, for the process itself to be full of life and to deeply resonate with the way the rest of life works. Uh, and so I'm writing a book about that as well. And that's a deep passion of mine. I'm bringing that to every project I'm involved in, which, which is all kinds of applications, farms and developments and businesses and whatnot. And then a more recent development is what I'm calling designing for life. And that's, that's kind of going to be an umbrella platform or place where I just get to share all of these other things and everything I'm into. Yeah. So there's, there's my, this is my summary. The, the level of tenacious exploration is something that I, I really appreciate in how you operate. You operate in finding your curiosities and then going down the garden path as long and as far as you can to find where it might end and then coming back and then seeing how that integrates with everything else. How does that experience live inside of you and live outside of you. And there's quite a bit of reflection there. And there's a number of things I want to pick up there. I think one that that you said, but I don't know if it landed for everybody, you and your business partner, Adam, the two of you actually created the permablitz idea, the idea of lightning fast uh, permaculture change about going in and revamping an entire garden together, right? That that was the that was the the, the story there, right? Adam was a key player. He, he says that he rocked up to the first permablitz in time to 
do the dance and eat the cake. And for that, he gets credited as a co-founder. He, he, so he, he, was, he was there in, from the very beginning and he, he went on to play a really crucial role. There was actually another character called um, uh, Nelson, uh, El Salvadorian um, man. And it was actually initially a conversation with him that really kind of got, got the ball rolling. And then so Adam came in just after it started and played a really critical role. It was a, just to mention it briefly, Adam and I have a very long standing dynamic where I'll have an idea and get excited and galvanize people and enjoys people and start something. And then in a, in a very short time frame, we'll take off. And sometimes, well, quite often, it seems there's other people waiting to, to hold the baby. And Adam held the baby for quite a long time until others came along and joined as well. So you said it really started with a conversation with a El, El Salvadorian gentleman. What was the conversation that started? Well, I I'd, uh, I was doing a PhD in psychology and philosophy, and I was on an academic track, and I was spending hundreds of hours writing um, articles full of long words that maybe three or four other ac- academics were ever destined to read in my lifetime and whatnot. So I was playing that game, and I was on track to be an academic. And then I had a kind of a freak out moment where I, where I looked at the academics 20, 30, 40 years down the track from me and thought, holy shit, that is not who I want to become. But that's the that's if I don't change something, that is who I am going to become. You know, there's over, overdeveloped minds, disembodied minds on these kind of just out of touch with their bodies and, and, and playing word games. And, and I was realizing I was, I was struggling to see how I could actually have a beneficial impact in the world from within the confines of the academy. So I got the heck out of there and um, I hit the ground and found some housemates and we started growing veggies and I learned how to make sourdough bread and stuff like that and shortly after that I happened to randomly bump into a community group composed of South American immigrants who'd been in Australia for 20-30 years in some cases um, but were still living with isolation like they were still the English wasn't great they weren't they were struggling to get good work and all that kind of stuff so they were, they were hanging together and supporting each other through the experience of being immigrants in Australia. And we became really dear friends. And I started running English lessons. They were teaching me Spanish, we would dance. And I just loved how relaxed and, you know, how much just getting together and enjoying life was a key part of their whole shtick. Um, so we got, we got, we were getting on great. And then I got into permaculture. I did a permaculture design course 2005. And I was starting to drift away from my, my South American friends. A lot of them were unhealthy even though the, the temporal gap from where they were to their agrarian origins, you know, they, all their tea, their tea towels, they had, they had art on their walls and stuff of, of the peasants in El Salvador or Chile or whatever out in the fields and, and the staple foods were, were more connected to what they'd eaten um, traditionally. Um, anyway, it, it looked like we were going to part company. And then in conversation, it was, I think it was Nelson or one of them said, hey, why don't, because I was, I was going permaculture and the stuff and we can grow food and and in the meantime, they're eating their pavlova and, I don't know, sh- showing me how they eat. I remember one of them saying, Danny, Danny, they said, Danny, Danny, look at my yogurt, fat-free yogurt, you'll make me healthy. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and we're talking. And anyway, the idea came up, why don't we build one of these gardens you're talking about in one of our backyards? And so we had the day and it was like about 20, oh, it was like 15 or so South Americans. And there was about 10 or probably 10 people like me, including Adam, who showed up a bit later on. Um, who were just interested in permaculture and wanted to try stuff out. And the energies at that edge zone were just incredible. So it was just such a powerful, um, enjoyable day. That was like, we're having another one of these, and then we're having another one of these, and then what should we call them? Permblitz. It's all right, great. And yeah, so it was, it was, a, it was a beautiful experience. When I hear that story, it, it reminds me that so many of the solutions to the problems that we have are normally right in front of us that the people around us and the stories and the conversations 
or actively in front of us. And it occurs to me that a good number of well, quite a lot about your work that I've, I've taken is, is tapping into an ecological process that we are thus reapplying to call it a human civilization, a society-based process. I think the living design process is a great example of that. It's, it's a way of reintegrating living alive processes to a, to a process that inherently was based upon that, but maybe shifted off course maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can give you my understanding of what happened there. Yeah, please. So, you know, so with respect to permaculture, um, the way I see it now, the way I understand it is that the seed from which permaculture germinated, like permaculture's originating impulse was um, yeah, this compelling, radical, beautiful, profound idea of becoming deeply re-immersed and enmeshed and nested in the ecologies we're part of and, and as communities moving back into a, a space of providing our own needs locally in community interdependence in a way that, that enhances ecosystem health, which remains a core part of its aspiration. But to do anything, so this is, you could think of this as an outcome, a desired end. It's like, why, why wouldn't we do this? Why would, not, why would we not recreate this? And, you know, and I remember in Permaculture One, they, there was a comment, something like, some people say we're, we're saying, let's recreate Eden on, on Earth. And why not? <laughs> why the heck not? And that was my impulse when I did the permaculture design course the first time. I was like, why aren't we just doing this? Like, we know what to do. We can make, we can edibilize our suburbs and just create these abundant landscapes and everyone doesn't have to work so much. And, you know, why aren't we doing it? It's just sort of a psychological or cultural block. Anyway, the way I see it, um, to achieve an outcome, you need a process. And in permaculture's case, by and large, Bill Mollison, for example, was more an ecologist than a designer, um, as I understand it. And he, like in the designer's manual and whatnot, there wasn't a lot on design processes and design methods, but there was kind of an empty gap there. I know David Holmgren quite well, and I've talked to him a lot about his journey with us and what, what happened from his perspective. Um, and he, he kind of sees it relatively similarly. And he, he learned his design process understandings from a, from a second mentor, a guy called Hakai Tane. And he actually ended up getting a bit disillusioned and kind of, kind of giving up on trying to teach an approach to design process that was really worthy and, and able to deliver on permaculture's aspiration because it's kind of hard and it's so different. And so the way I see it, what happened is that permaculture kind of reached into the cultural grab bag and pulled out what are actually default standard kind of mechanical approaches to process, which are about putting together a wish list of elements and then joining the elements together, something like a Lego construction, very much buying into the whole idea of step one is do a detailed design, observe, but then do a detailed design on a piece of paper and then impose that design on the landscape. And the more I went into like just those two ideas, the idea that design is assembling parts to create a whole and the idea that the way to do a, to create something is to do a detailed design first or a master plan or a blueprint and then impose it on the, on the landscape. I discovered that both of those things, if that's the core of your design process, your design process con is constitutionally not able to deliver on permaculture's aspiration. So to me, it was like a pretty big deal. It was almost like a unacknowledged existential crisis for me anyway. And so that, that, that really started me on the journey towards what would a more living process that was actually able to, to, to realize permaculture's um, beautiful potential, what would that look like? And just like leaning into the space of that question, my, my, my word, you know, that's, been, that's led me to some amazing places. And, um, beautiful discoveries and experiences along the way. I love how you you encapsulated that 
and this again comes back to human mentality that human mentality is trying to continually apply the state or the mentality that that uh, got us into the problem to apply it to the solution yeah and inherently we find ourselves disconnected from the ecology that created us genetically stable let's call it 250,000 years ago 70,000 years for the cognitive revolution when we when we got our prefrontal cortex and started to become a smarter animal i won't say the smartest animal but definitely a smarter animal and as we start to disconnect with ecology as we start to move away from ecology as we start to remove ourselves from the system we decide to come back and so it feels like that first step is oh there's an awareness there's a problem which is you know changes 10% awareness first and foremost so i feel like that's what permaculture did well there is a problem here is the problem we are mm-hmm. not connecting and then after that 10% tools and techniques and potentially the first i don't know you know half of those tools and techniques about 40 percent were based upon the same mechanistic reductionistic mentality that brought us into the problem in the first place which is all we have to figure out are parts and slam them together and we'll have ourselves a solution when inherently four and a half billion years of evolution and co-evolution and symbiosis and parasympathetic and and all of these different relationships created life on this planet plus all the ones we still haven't figured out yet and so to take the moment to take a step back and go wait a second there might be something else here because it doesn't actually fit within the model we're emulating seems like a very radical thing to do yeah 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 it's it still kind of amazes me the whole the whole thing because to me it's as simple really as saying okay like on one level and these days i actually question this language but permaculture um, talks about mimicking nature mimicking systems but, you know at the very least resonating with and taking inspiration from the forest the wetlands and so on you, like you look at your hand and, and just ask the question of how did my hand come to be or go and look at a, a seed germinating into a plant and the most basic observations you know descriptions of what you see is like okay so the, initially there was a seed and then this the, the plant and the tree or whatever it is unfolded out of the seed the seed you know like there wasn't a bunch of leaves and branches and a trunk and a, and roots and etc. that were all stuck together to create a tree. It unfolded out of a process that was set in motion when the when the seed germinated. What would it mean to for us to design a, a farm or, a, or whatever like that? Is that possible? And I've found that the answer is a compelling yes. And 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 also similarly. The, the seed has no master plan or blueprint. There's nothing inside the seed that, that dictates or determines or even in a sense cares about the exact shape of the plant and how many leaves and whether it's symmetrical or asymmetrical, or whatever else. What's in there is the DNA, like the, the core kind of guiding wisdom that determines that it's going to become one species and not, not, not another, but the, rea- the reality of the, the, the details all emerge in the, in the moment by moment iterative unfolding, which is utterly in resonance with the surrounding field and the, and the wind and the sun and all that, all that kind of stuff. So again, it's like, well, would that be possible? And, it, and with Christopher Alexander's help, it's like, hell yeah. And even if I just bring those two realities into my design process, it's a fundamentally different thing. And, and the, the quality and the beauty and the life of, of what comes out of those processes is just, you know, it's, it, um, once I've done it once or twice, it was like, there's, there's absolutely no, go, no going back. And so a lot of it's just clarifying and, deepening and sharing the, this, all this stuff. So walk me through it, Dan. We've got before living design process and we have after living design process. Walk me through the parallels of 
Dan pre living design process, what he would do, and now Dan post living design process, knowing that once you understand that life is iterative, that this is a snapshot of how you do it today, and it'll probably change in a year or two years or whatever. But walk me through, so folks who have gone through some kind of permaculture design process or regenerative agriculture process or agrarian's process can see the difference between the two. Because I think the core of what you're saying is so exceptionally important and people are really tied to the how. That's a great idea, but how do I practically do that? Especially when, how do I do that when I'm so uncultured with, take the observation, take the sectors, you know, take, you know, go through this process and then plunk it together as opposed to what you're about to tell us. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, this is a great question. This sort of question excites me. And I really acknowledge that, yeah, that, that I'm sure that's an experience some of my listeners sometimes have is what the hell is he talking about? Can he bring this down to earth? And I am very conscious of, I'm, I've always got four or five actual real practical projects going on. And I do a lot of work on documenting and saying, this is how the ideas make a difference. They're not just, I'm not just messing around with ideas for their own sake. Um, so if, let, let's see what comes up for me. So one, one uh, let, let's take the, the pre case. So I'd walk in, I'd be, I'd be engaged as a professional permaculture design consultant. And I understand myself to be that I'm a consultant, I'm coming in to offer you expertise you don't have, that's what you're buying from me. So I'd arrive as the expert, I would talk to you fairly briefly, because I didn't have a lot of skills in terms of really getting to know who you are. All I really knew was you were you were basically a, a generic instance of a person who wanted permaculture. Right? So I talk to you briefly, it's like, I don't really need to know who you are. All I need to know is that you want permaculture. And then we'll go out and we'll look at your space and I'll, you know, I might, I might look at the soil and the sectors and all this stuff is really important. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd map the place. So I get a very superficial feel for what the people are about. I wouldn't really understand at all what they really wanted, what they were aspiring to, which is never permaculture I've realized now. Um, you know, people don't want permaculture for its own sake. They have some values or something they're aspiring towards that they see permaculture as a potential pathway towards. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. And then I would come up, I would put together a wish list. So, okay, you want a chicken house, you want kitchen veggies, main crop veggies, a compost, somewhere for the dog house, somewhere for the kids to play, whatever, a food forest, an orchard, whatever the case may be. And based on my, my very superficial reading of them and, and a less superficial reading of the landscape, but still one that was very kind of analytical and intellectually driven, I would assemble the elements that they had requested to, to, into a picture and then give them the picture. And that picture was ultimately the product. And they would buy the picture and or, you know, I'd give them the picture, give them the invoice, maybe a report of explanation. And I would walk off, job done. <laughs> and they'd be left there with this picture they've just paid for that looks kind of pretty, but they really have not much of a clue at all what's going on or what, or what informed the decisions. And as, um, as we move into the segue into what I do now, um, but as so myself and so many of the people I interview on the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast um, have realized sometimes after five, six, seven years of working in this way, they go back, the clients never understood the design. So they haven't been implemented or they've been second guessed. You know, there's no ownership there. And what they're attached to is this picture. So sometimes they're trying to impose the picture, but they haven't really been in, given any, um, they haven't been educated or supported to grow into the fact that any permaculture system is, is an ongoing evolution, right? So they just, you know, I used to think I was giving them value, but really I, was, I wasn't. Anyway, um, not, not to say that, you know, some, some of these clients, you know, I go back and they're still grateful and some stuff happened but the gardens are just nothing and their experience is nothing like what's possible now. So let's, let's fast track to, to today. I'm no longer a permaculture design consultant. I'm no longer an, an expert with this precious kind of body of knowledge that I'm selling to people. 
I'm a, I'm a process facilitator and I come in to act more as a mentor, a coach, a guide to facilitate a process where my interest is more in um, supporting the germination and fragile early growth and then the momentum building of a living process which is owned and held by the clients, by the people I'm working with, because they're going to have to steer this ship, this farm, this garden, whatever it is for the rest of their lives. So when I step back, I want to know that, you know, their hand, they know where the steering wheel is, they know what their options are, with what it, it's probably a bad uh, metaphor because it's a mechanical one, but um, that's my focus. And everything is different. So from the very beginning, I'm like, who are you? And it, when I first started reading people more deeply, I'd start, I'd still start with, what do you want? You know, and I taking, there's a line from Christopher Alexander where he says it's extremely hard to help people tell you what they want. Cause even when you start focusing on that more, you say, what do you want? And someone says something you write it down. You say, great, that's what you want. We'll try and give you what you want. It's never what they want. <laughs> it's the start of a conversation. What they want is much deeper than that. And these days I even start with just who I don't necessarily say, who are you? But I just, I might let them tell me what they think they want. But what I'm really sitting with is who are you? What's unique about you? What's non-generic about you as a living being? And what are you aspiring toward? And what's going on in your life? And what lights you up? And what books have you got on your bookshelf? And all that kind of stuff. I want to know them more deeply. And as soon as you ask the question, of course, you, you, it happens. And using holistic decision-making quite often, we, we might develop a context or some statement of their unique set of values and their purpose for the, for the project. And so that, that gets a lot more attention. And until I'm really clear on that, I don't, you know, it's like I can't really go any further. Then moving on to, if, if it's a landscape-based project and living design process, holistic decision-making applies regardless. So often I'm working with businesses or organizations or events or whatever it is. But if, it's, if it involves a physical landscape, the way I approach that is quite different now as well. Like in the past, when I first got into permaculture, it would be, as I mentioned, sort of intellectually driven, kind of rushed and analytical. We've got to map the sectors. We've got to check out the soil. Where are the fence lines? Which way does that gate hinge? Right, let's get it together. People, we've got to deliver these people to design and invoice them and move on to the next job. My attitude and my, my approach is similar to the people. It's like, it's almost like I'm saying under my breath to the, to the place, who are you? Or who is this place? I'd like, I'd like to get to know you. So it's a, it's much more humble. It's much more initially I'm just wanting to catch the vibe, get the feeling of the place. And a hundred percent, I still do the sectors and still do the geology. And like a few days ago, I brought David Holmgren in to help me read landscape on a complex 400 acre property. So in no way it's, it's no less rigorous at all um, or thorough or deep to me. It's a lot more of those things, but it's a lot, it's just a lot bigger. And, and so as, as, as well as, kind of mapping all the flows and the sectors and all the standard stuff, I really want to start to hone in on what's unique about this place. Like what is it about this place that, that reveals its unique character to me? And I've developed certain tools for doing that. And now I'm in an amazing position for the next phase of the living design process to happen where along the way I'm doing this with the clients. So I'm not mapping the place and then saying, here's a pretty map of your place. I'm saying, let's go and dig some holes together. To the extent that they're up for that, you know, sometimes I'm also meeting people where they're, where they're at and not imposing things on them, but we're walking forward step by step and quite often I'm giving them homework and they're going and digging the holes or measuring this or mapping this and then they're catching me up rather than me having to catch them up. Otherwise, we're on the same page. The only time we're not is when they've, they've gotten ahead and they have to catch me up. But once we've thoroughly immersed, and I call it immersing, not analysing anymore, in the people in the place, we become eligible to start that this beautiful into this beautiful liminal phase between what is and what might become or what wants to become. Right. And so we just, we're dancing and teasing and starting to massage early high level um, possibilities where the focus is on actually 
um, let's let's hone in on an, on a sensible first move to make. Not a master plan, not a blueprint, not the first ten steps. The first step, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's putting in a driveway or a dam or whatever. It, 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 could, it could be anything depending on the circumstances. And then we crash test it. We mock it up. So we're still not using paper. Usually we're staking things out, mapping them, get, getting a sense of how they feel. We're looking for tensions, like anything about the garden or the farm or the layout that, that could create a, a tension. Like you put a dam in because you feel tense because you're so dry, but the way you put it in might make you feel tense because it's the wall is really steep or something. You've got kids, whatever it is. So you're crash testing and winnowing and simmering and honing on the next step. And at some point you're there, you're, you're, you're all but certain that it's a good move. Boom, you make the move, you transform the whole situation. And then you re-immerse, you know, come back. Okay, it's, this is a different place now. Whatever we've done has sent ripples of difference through the, through the whole field. Let's re-immerse and hone in on the, on the next step. And the, the beauty of it for me is that I've got no idea what's gonna come out of the process. Like it's a surprise to me. I, I feel like I'm supporting the birth of new form where later on, none of the form came out of my clever mind as a designer. It all came out of the actual forces at play in the situation. And for that reason, it's beautifully harmonically or harmoniously adapted. It just fits and feels right and beautiful. And the clients own it, you know, it's, they own it as much, if not more than I do. And then at some point I start to just sort of back off and come and back as needed to support them to kind of grow and evolve into continuing the process, which will happen for the rest of their lives. So that was a long answer, but gives you a, gives you a flavor. <laughs> well, in my experience, the length of the answer has no bearing necessarily on the quality. It's oh, good to the, hear. Good to hear. You know, the time it takes to tell the story is the time it takes to tell a story. And, you know, we've talked a lot about, the living design process. And what I love about it is that hearing it and asking you questions from the perspective of, I've never met you, I'm listening to you for the first time or watching you for the first time. How do I make this real to somebody who is still very much in that idea of, I want a result. Now it doesn't have to be a base map, it doesn't have to be a final plan, things like that. But I wanna understand this process, what do I do first? Uh -huh. And as we've talked about in, in a lot of the processes and the systems and the tools we use, there's an intent, there's an inherent intent within it. And I feel like hearing this this time, this is this has strengthened my belief that the living design processes I'm hearing it, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your, your, your viewpoint on this, is really about who is here, what is here. It's really about understanding the place from a lived-in experience instead of a, here is a few metrics and a few assessments, and I'm going to make every decision based upon those as opposed to being, you know, an uncle that comes into the land, an uncle that comes into the family, a, a, a community member that really tries to deeply understand this place and still gives third party, what third party hygienic, a sober second thought when individuals are so close to a project that sometimes they miss the things that they might see if they had a little bit of perspective. For sure. Yeah. When you work in this way and you come up against clients who are let's say more objective focused do they filter themselves out in terms of being eligible to work with you or do you find that the attractiveness of this it, I, i'm giving two binary dispositions it's it doesn't have to be one or the other but i'm just curious on that spectrum when you are intaking new clients and you're starting to explain 
your process because arguably they're probably not going to know it. When they come to you and you explain this is about an evolving immersion, about understanding what to do, about taking the first logical, sensible first step, ground truthing it, testing it, proving it, then taking the next logical step. What's the response you get from clients? Is it a, this is interesting, I'm confused, this isn't what I ordered? How, how does that work? It's a great question, yeah, and it is, it is a continuum. It's interesting because initially I was, I was, when I first got into this, I was much clearer about my selection criteria and I, had, I kind of had pre-filters, which meant that people that wanted a master plan to, and basically to be told what to do with their land in their life, they, they just didn't get through the filter. These days, that said, I'm, I'm much more comfortable to bring this process to anyone at any point on the continuum. And um, one thing I'll do early on is, is do my best job to try and summarize what it would mean to work and, and try and get across that what it would mean to work with me is probably going to be a different experience to what it would mean to work with somebody else. And let's make, I think you have a good fit course. That's exactly what it is. Let's find out whether we're a good fit. And it's not just, it's a two way thing too. It's reciprocal. It's not just, do you think that what I offer is a good fit for you? It's, do I think what it would, you would offer me if I was to work with you, would that be a good fit for me? Yes or no? Cause if it's no, I'm not interested. I've got, other great projects to get on with. So we have that conversation and then the thing unfolds. Early on, I, I, I remember one case where I got, I've never had someone say, no, I don't like that way of working, Dan. Because I, I think I, I kind of, the way I communicate is, look, I'm pretty invested in this stuff and passionate about it. And what I'm talking about is the process that's the best able to generate the best possible outcomes for your place. And you know, people hear that and they're like, well, yeah, sign us up. That's what we want. I had one case early on where we took some steps and, and, and the people realized that's not what they wanted. What they wanted was someone else to come and give them a master plan. And, and they weren't interested in being part of the process themselves, um, which was fine. You know, we, we identified that, had the conversation, and that's what, that's what happened. Since then, I think as the process has evolved as well, I've, I just don't really have that anymore because it's, it's like I've learned one way of phrasing this distinction is between a model, which you kind of, it's like a generic recipe that you impose time after time and a framework, which is a flexible kind of set of underlying principles that will show up differently every time you apply it. Hmm. As I'm more in that second category. So the process itself, like it's not just that living design processes, it's, it's certainly not a linear sequence. It's sort of an underlying way of approaching a process. The, the process it generates in every instance will be totally different. And so I have cases where people are really happy to go really slow and spend a long time immersing and working on their context and all that stuff and nothing actually happens for two years. I have people that need something done yesterday. They need some kind of gratification. We need to dig something or plant something now. And I can roll with that, you know, and, and it's really about my growing ability to be able to hold the process and to know what matters and what doesn't. And so I've had, I've had a whole range just recently. In, in one case, within like two weeks of starting the process, there was a bulldozer doing some quite significant works on the property which in the past would have totally freaked me out um, but we 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 did we did enough justice with the process and i had enough trust with the earth mover and so on for that that to happen and that just kind of scratched a deep itch the clients had like we need we need something to be happening physical that we can see and kind of bought a bit of time to to start to to slow down and, and um one one thing i'll mention is that so often with clients they get you in because they're excited right Mm. It's a landscape. They're like, we could do this. We could do this and this and this. We want this and this. And there's all these goals and it's, a, it's an eco retreat and it's going to be a truffle orchard and it's going to be this and this, a regenerative farm. They, they bring this powerful activating energy. And part of my job is to meet that activating energy and not to do two things. The first thing is to say, to block it and say, you're an idiot. None of this is going to work. Shut up. Listen to me. 
that's not going to take the conversation in healthy directions. And, but on the flip side, not to say all these ideas are fantastic. Let's, let's just do it. Like I'm going to support you to probably waste a lot of your money and, and do things you'll regret. My job is to be in between those two points and be a, a positive restraining force, right? Where I'm, I'm hearing their goals and I'm seeing through their goals to the underlying energies. Like, what do you really want here? What are you on about here? And how can we hone in on that? And sure, we might, we might pander to some of your goals and get some stuff happening. Um, but how can I restrain you in a way where it's not about trying to find a compromise between what you want to do and the reality of what's possible. It's about how do we reconcile your activating force, my restraining force to find this, this pathway that kind of exists in the overlap where it, it is feasible and practical and all that stuff. And it's right on online with what you want. And so a lot of it is around moving from experiencing or looking for the problems like, Oh, this client's an idiot. They just don't get it. They want something that's not possible to looking for the potential. What's the potential for me to find a pathway forward here that really does show me I've heard them and that I'm getting what they're on about, but also, you know, does something that's realistic or, or feasible or, beautiful and, and doesn't get to a point where I'm, I'm like, well, I let you do what you wanted. And I, mean, I told you so that kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a really fun dance. And, and, the, and the more I go along, the more flexible I get, you know, and the more I'm able to work with all different kinds of um, people in a way that still honors what matters to me about the process. You were saying that there's the idea of a model, which can be a recipe and the idea of a framework, which is inherently principles based. For the living design process, what are some of those principles for you that you come to that help to guide and motivate this process? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. I haven't, I haven't considered thoroughly whether I'd call these principles, but they're the closest thing to it. And they probably are. So they're what's come to mind. So when I introduce living design process, so there's like six or seven key continuums and living design process is about moving toward one end rather than the other. And to me, um, the more the more you your processes at one end of this these continuums I'll outline, the more life it's going to have, and hence the more life it's going to create. The other end, the less life, and the less life it's going to create. And so the um, the first one there is work to de to develop enhance pre the pre existing whole. Is at the more living end of the continuum. At the less living end is start with a with a whole bunch of parts and try and join them together to create a whole. And so, so the more you're working with what's already there to unfold future um, parts out of the pre-existing whole, and the less you're trying to force kind of separate parts together to create the whole, the more living it is. So that would be a that would be a um, one principle. Another one is that the any any design process is a sequence of decisions, right? You're making decisions about what to focus on and what to do and where to put things. And the more living a process is, the more those decisions are pr the, the primary thing that's informing those decisions are things that are happening inside the actual immediate local situation, like actual forces at play. So an extreme example of the opposite of that is when the decisions are, have nothing to do with the actual, actual circumstances right here. It's when like a, an architect who's enamored with postmodern fashions and architecture says, oh, we'll make the building a big random kind of cube with, a, with an elongated triangle sticking out the side. That decision, and if that happens, it's, it's nothing to do with the place where the building sits. It's 100% to do with some random idea that, that the architect had in their head. And it's, it's, it's easy to grasp in that context, but in permaculture, that's very often what's happening. You know, when we say, oh, you know, we'll do a swale here, or we'll do this there, or do we do, do this here? Um, the decision is more about what our teacher taught us, or what we read in a book, or what popped into our mind, as opposed to what, what really wants to, to happen here. So how would you, as a principle, it would be something like, 
to what extent it, uh, or make, make decisions based, let decisions arise out of the actual forces at play rather than outside of it, internal rather than external kind of decision source. Another principle is this idea of, it's to do with two separations. The first separation is between the de designing or de the designer. So in a, in a, in a highly non-living case, the designer is one person, it might be an architect or a landscape architect. They do a design. The design is then finished and handed over to an implementer, a builder or a landscaping company. Um, and then once it's built, it's then handed over to the user, the end user. And there's a, there's a separate separation between these three things. And the more those things are separate, the less living the process. The more they're, they're either the same thing or deeply connected and, infused and kind of informing each other, the more alive the process is. Another one is the idea of the relationship to time. So, so quite often in, in a lot of conventional design and creation processes, it's all about timelines and deadlines, timeframes and deadlines, and kind of getting the job done to move on to the next job. Um, and so generally the pace is high and we're just going to push through this thing. To me, that's, that's a, an anti-principle of a living design. A living design principle is more about let the, let the rate and the pace be determined by, let those decisions also be determined by what's actually going on here. So sometimes we just need to slow down and breathe people. You know, we need to immerse in this place and get to a point where we really feel like we, we've, we've got its pulse. Same with the people. And then at other times, it's time to move now. And, you know, it's time to get these trees in now or the, the rains are coming in two weeks. So we've got to do the earthworks now. And sometimes it's re really fast, just like watching a tree grow. Like you watch an acorn that's germinated. You don't even know it's germinated for a long time. It's just sitting there. But all this stuff's happening and then a little root goes down. It's a long time before you see any kind of action and, and leaves popping up. And sometimes that can happen quite quickly in comparison. So it's like letting, letting the pace ebb and flow. And to me, the whole idea of a deadline I mean, even the word, right? It's not very alive. If it's all about some arbitrarily chosen date, or even the idea that the thing is finished um, it itself is, is kind of problematic. Now, I've kind of wandered over a few there. I think there's a few more in there, but it gives you, gives you a bit of a heads up on some of the key things. And I'm finding this is, this is practical. Like I can go into any, any process or I can look at my own live process in the moment and say, to what extent, where does it sit on this continuum? or this continuum, or this continuum. So I'm, I'm actually developing a way I can map the signature of any process and get a feel for how alive it is. And then I can do the experiment and say, okay, is my hypothesis true? Is the more the process sits at the living end of the continuum, does that generate more living outcomes, yes or no? And so far, the answer is a resounding yes. And I'm, I'm really excited to be, to be documenting all of these processes and, and having the drone footage and all that kind of stuff where it's not just, oh, look, we took a bit of brown earth and now it's green, you know, like, Aren't we great? It's it's we we created something deeply harmonious and beautiful that's going to persist. Like it, you know, it's it's really worth 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 celebrating, sort of thing. Your your explanation of the principles reminds me of a conversation I had earlier today with a um, a colleague and a client a farmer in northern Alberta, and province just just east of me here in Canada, where I'm broadcasting from British Columbia. And they were speaking about how, because of COVID-19, because of the self-quarantine, because of the self-isolation, because of a number of different issues to their site, they're not willing to take on the deadlines and the commitments of a community-supported agriculture, a CSA box. They're not willing to take on contracts right now. They're an incredible Indigenous um, farmer who will also do quite a bit of um, tanning, hide tanning. 
Mm -hmm. And it was a really specific point. They said, you know, I, I don't want to take this on because right now I need to be adaptive and flexible mm -hmm. to my situation. And it was so interesting to hear the called the societal programming of, I need to take on a deadline. A deadline is the only way to do it. When you take a look at this, the simple idea of, is it living or is it non-living? And, and I think that's, that's the dichotomy. It's not living or dead because dead mm. is still within the living scope. Is it living or is it non-living? Is it an artifice that doesn't want to work naturally within the system or the ecologies it lives in? Does it actually work with it? And a deadline, we need to have a plan for this place in three months, is completely oblivious to the context of the place. The people who are involved, the regulatory bodies, the processes, all the rest of that, which as I'm saying that out loud, I could imagine being the client going, well, how do I ever get a sense that something's going to finish? Yeah, that's right. How, like, are you billing me by the hour? Are you billing me total? Do you give time to me forever? Does that rate then drop? Like you're working for two bucks an hour because you're charging whatever. Like how, do, how does that practically come into the way that you work with clients? How does mm -hmm. that, how does that yeah, wash good. out? Good question. It's amazing. A lot of people have that question. I just want to mention briefly that it's master plan too. So, you know, people probably heard the phrase, the map is not the territory. And often we, without thinking about it, we take a master planning approach. And what a master plan is, is it's saying the plan is the master as opposed to reality, which is the servant. So in terms of the map is not the territory, it's like, yeah, the map's not the territory. The map, if you're a master planner, the map is more important than the territory. And we're going to come up with a master map, a master plan, and we're going to impose that shit on the ground, you know. And then if we're going to do it with a deadline, we're, we're, I don't say non-living and living, I say less living, more living. Because we're all on the journey, we're all on the continuum, and you know, I'm, I'm, I move back and forth as well, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, project-to-project. But the, I, I've reached this, this idea that, that if, a, if a project is all about um, master plans to a deadline, then you know, the, the life there is probably absent. Now, to your pressing practical question, how the hell do I charge for this? How do you make this work professionally? It's, it's kind of easy, right, to do a master plan and sell it. It's like I'm selling them the picture, it's a set cost, it's easy peasy. And I can do, I do one picture, I sell it, move on to the next one and so on. How do you make this work? So that's been a big experiment for me too, because I'm not, as I said earlier, I'm not interested in pretty ideas. I'm interested in practical realities. And I've made this a practical reality in my own, in my own life. One, so I'll, I'll talk about a few aspects of it. I mean, the first thing I'll mention is the way, I've, way I'm making it work is making it based on an hourly rate. Because as you may have ascertained, there's no way that I can possibly say this project will take exactly 100 hours. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? It's like, well, it might take 10 hours. We might decide to pull the plug in two hours. It might take a thousand hours. I don't know. You don't know. How, how can we, we can make something up. Reality is we don't know. So let's agree on an hourly rate. And I can give you a ballpark. I can say, you know, based on my past experience, we can probably get to a point where you've got A, B, and C in a year or six months or whatever, and you will, you will have spent X amount of your dollars. Um, I remember people being surprised when they've come and seen some of the projects because they've asked this question. And the funny thing was in, 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 in certain of these cases, anyway, the actual ticket price, so the price the client paid was no different or possibly even slightly less than what they would have paid. If it was a, it was a lump sum for a master plan where instead of me going and working intensively with them for two or three weeks and then giving them a plan and see you later, I've been working with them on and off for six months or a year or two years. So the duration is much longer. And yet, how does that work? How, how does the final price be the same? 
am I being paid two bucks an hour? No, I'm being I'm being paid, you know, a person, perfectly reasonable amount that more than motivates me to get out of bed in the morning. The trick is that, the, as I mentioned earlier, the clients are doing most of the work. Because I'm, I'm not an expert doing all the work anymore. I'm a process mentor or facilitator. And so all I'm doing is saying, okay, here's, here's your next job. You do this and then call me back in. You do this, then call me back in. So they're doing 80, not sometimes 90% of the work, depending on the situation. Some people only want to do 50%, some people 40%. Sometimes they want me stepping with them every part, part of the way. One thing I achieved by charging a, a pretty, you know, a non-low hourly rate is I want to encourage people to, to depend on me as little as possible. So I want them to realize, oh, Dan's quite expensive. So if we can do this two hours work ourselves and then get 10 minutes of his reflection, we save ourselves X, X dollars. And so that's, that's one thing. Another thing I'll mention is that I've, I had to move my psychology from, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have one or two projects on the go and I'm gonna finish them and move on to the next project and so on, to I'm gonna have multiple projects on the go. So right now I've probably got 10 live, I don't know, 10 or 12 live projects. It's hard to say whether some of them are finished or not. Initially, I'm putting in a lot of time, like I'm seeing people, like I started a project several weeks ago and every third or fourth day I've been out there, you know, putting in a lot of hours to get the ball rolling. Once it's rolling, I step back and it might get to the point where now I'm only coming out or only talking with each other once a month and once every two months and, and now I haven't heard from you from a year, but when you're ready to take that next step and you're planning the chestnut orchard or whatever it is, you'll call me back in. And so at any one time, I've got multiple streams going. So rather than having one or two jobs generating, you know, X dollars per month, I've got 12 jobs or 15 jobs, each of them generating less money per month, but over a long, you know, a smaller amount over a longer duration where the net effect is the same or potentially even, um, even greater. So I don't know, I hope these are practical enough. You know, it's, I'm living it, I'm doing it, it's totally feasible. And I get a bit annoyed now when people say, oh no, Dan, it's like beautiful ideas, but this is just, this could never work. I'm like, what do you mean? It's working, I'm doing it. So I don't want anyone to use that as an excuse anymore because it's, it's been disproven. <laughs> like, you know, sure, play the master plan game if that's your thing, but don't pretend you're doing it out of necessity or, or at least admit that you're not very creative. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. If you work with master plans, Dan would like to call you not very creative. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dan, that, that to me really speaks to, again, allowing you to be the designer, the process facilitator, you know, put your label where you like it. But you're being very specific to who you are as a person. And, you know, it's funny, I must have missed that you were getting a PhD in psychology. And what was the other thing? I'll end up in philosophy, systems thinking. Philosophy, philosophy. Yeah. I must have missed that because I feel like you and I actually are now closer than I would have realized because I was on the same academic track and realized I was going to be a body that carried around the head instead yeah. of a head that was an integral part of my body. That was part of the hands, head, and heart. And... Yeah. That conversation, I feel like I've had that conversation with a number of different designers or heard it from another, a number of different designers. And I think everybody is trying to take it in their own way, that they're trying to integrate that idea in their own way. And some are more held by previous conditionings and patterns and processes than others. But taking the time to understand that there is a, essentially at the core of that, 
essentially at the core of this, there is an issue, which is working with a living system is incompatible with working with a non-living approach. That inherently you're going to get something that doesn't work if your approach inherently, if your approach by its essence isn't living as well. Beautifully put, 100%. It's profound. It's profound. It's, it's fascinating how our conversations over the last few years have, have seeped into my own design process, probably without me knowing it. Because I don't feel like I have actively taken that approach, but I feel like the result of working with immers uh, immersing myself in, in places has really come up to that same idea, probably not the scale or scope as you have. Uh, as usual, you're leading the way. But that idea is so paramount. And is that what really germinated Making Permaculture Stronger, the podcast, the writing, the idea, the movement? I don't know what you call it. Is it a, is it a traveling troubadour circus that shows up and does story time and gets people excited? And then, <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of things. Making permaculture stronger, I actually initially conceptualized that as a parting gift to permaculture because I was starting to get a bit pissed off because I was starting to kind of notice these things and mention and I thought, I, I don't want to be committing myself and caught up in a community that's sort of so attached to a non-living process and unaware of the fact that that's, that's happening that it's not able to realize its potential or develop its potential as fully as it might otherwise be able to. And so I thought, well, I don't, I don't want to leave and have anyone say, well, why, why did he take off? Why did he pack up his toys and leave the party? I, I, I want to be transparent about it. So I, I thought oh, I'll just write down a few of my concerns and get them out there and um, see what happens. And there was this enormously warm, encouraging, supportive response. Like it was, it, it, it wasn't like I was expecting more resistance um, or more people feeling like their, their identity as permaculturist was being attacked or something like that. There was none of that. Everyone was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's great. Thanks for doing this work, Dan. Keep, keep it going. And, and including mentors and teachers and people I really look up to. And so that turned around entirely. And I'm not entirely sure of the relationship between making permaculture stronger and living design process. I mean, they kind of co-evolved, I think. Yeah. Making permaculture stronger started. I had aspirations in this direction. I was just getting into Christopher Alexander and bringing some of his insights into, into the conversation probably making permaculture stronger came first. And then along the way, living design processes is, is grown and emerged. And, and now the two are in, kind of in conversation or but the way it's happened with making permaculture stronger is I used this metaphor of a tree where the foundational universal site, site and culture, general aspects of permaculture, like the ethics and the principles and ecological literacy and stuff like that, energy dynamics, they're the roots. And then the, the, the branches and the smaller limbs and twigs and leaves are all the techniques and strategies and patterns. And then there's the trunk, which represents the process, which has been this big blind spot, sort of black box in permaculture. And, and when I got to the point where I realized that the, the default process understanding that we're using is not that great. It's almost like I realized the road had enough potholes to justify not just fixing the potholes, but actually like recreating the road, like digging it up and, and starting again. So I coppiced the tree in my own mind. This is a personal thought experiment. I actually cut the permaculture tree down, just <laughs> let it all fall to the ground. And we can compost and recycle what's good. The idea is that what happened was that we grafted on foreign material. The cyan wood of process understandings came from outside and they're not really worthy of permaculture and they don't honor permaculture. So let's cut it back to the ground and, and create a uh, clean surface and nourish it so that fresh shoots can regrow. And one of those shoots is what I call living design process. And there are other shoots by other people, like living systems thinking I consider a shoot. 
the field process model I, I, I consider a shoot, which is all about what would a process that really honors permaculture and honors life um, look like? And, and I'm welcoming as many shoots and conversations to the table as, as, as possible. So that's one way of, a long-winded way of conceptualizing the relationship between making permaculture stronger and living design process. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah, it, that model is so beautiful, that model of disturbance coming in and then what is still working, what is still at the core that then comes back. If you're like Dan, and I would put myself in the same category sometimes, or if you're like me, do you induce that clear cut? Do you induce that coppice, that cut that goes down to the crown and then says, okay, what naturally regenerates, regenerates, what comes yeah. back? Exactly. Regenerates. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love, I love, sorry, you go. No, please. I was going to say, yeah, uh, along the way of, of, I'm learning about uh, the regenerative approach offered by Carol Sanford and the Regenesis group and other people that I've been getting to know and learning from and immersing in myself. And I, I love the way they talk about regeneration as regeneration, authentic regeneration always involves disrupting, breaking old habits and patterns and get, getting rid of kind of superficial fluff and cutting back or getting back to the core of something, the, the essential core of something or the originating impulse of something and then letting fresh tissue grow from that place. And that, that's where I'm very much at with permaculture is like, I'm actually interested in being part of supporting permaculture to regenerate itself. And there is a lot of debris and a lot of baggage and a, and a lot of stuff that's in the way. Like there, like there is, if anyone needs examples, I can give you a long list. So let's let's come clean and own up, and we don't need to be embarrassed or anything. It's just like, hey, it's a young thing. Let's let's take a few steps back and 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 then realize what's possible. Where I love this idea of potential too, defining potential as how does the unique, uh, the essential uniqueness of something, how does that rise up to meet something that's deeply called for in the context, right? And permaculture is in this incredible place, given where it originated and and the core questions it grew out of, to offer such profound and relevant value to the world as it continues barreling in the directions it's, it's barreling in. And so it's like, oh, I just want to kind of like clean out all the cobwebs, get all the, get all the crap out of the way so that permaculture can genuinely and truly shine. And to me, a huge part of that is, is this conversation around developing communities of permaculture design practice. You know, let's just lift our game. Otherwise, 100% permaculture will eventually, in my opinion, stagnate and die because so many other disciplines around the world are in that conversation. And so it's time for for permaculture to make a decision in a sense, adapt or um, don't exist for much longer. You know, it might be 50, 100 years, but <laughs> that's how I see it. By the way, there's one, there's one other point that I wanted to make at some point before we wrap up. Yeah, yeah, to make it now. Okay, I'll make it now. Yeah, so it was the, it was the idea that it's been a real journey for me, for me to realize how deeply we're embedded and brought up to think in terms of First, you design something in your mind and or on paper and or on a computer screen, and then you, and you get it right and you make mistakes, and then you translate it into reality. To move from that very, very deep way of approaching things, you know, we've got, we've got, to, kind of, we've got to logically figure it out and, and plan it and maybe draw it first, and then only second are we going to start making the thing which has its place. I haven't mentioned that, that a lot of non-living processes have their place, especially when you're trying to generate something that's not alive, like a machine or something. Um, as opposed to, to the kind of approach, if you want to create a beautiful clay or earthen bowl or cup, you know, the most beautiful cups and bowls, they weren't planned first or, or logically figured out. 
the, the, the earth, the clay worker grabbed a hunk of clay you know, and stuck it on the wheel and started to work with it and move with it. And so it was being crafted in real time. And that's how I think of the work I'm doing and I'm supporting the people I work with to do on their landscapes, where it's like the whole farm, the 400 acres or the 50 acres or whatever, or the 1,000 square meters, that itself is the, is the clay. And what we're going to be doing is crafting and shaping and changing it in real time. So we're actually sculpting space or, um, yeah, like we're, 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 we're sculpting the, the actual texture of, of the real thing we're working with. We're not just playing around on pieces of paper and in our mind, then we're going to impose it. And just, just to really fall into that has been a very powerful experience for me. It's like, wow, this, this, even it's changed the way I think about land. Cause we can even think of land as kind of in this Newtonian mechanistic way as a, as a more or less flat surface. It's got some bumps, but then there's just this empty space above it. That's got some existing objects stuck inside of it. And even to realize that kind of thing, and you can come and you can actually train yourself to re-see it and re-experience as a kind of a living, thick, textured reality. And that when you, when you change something, and it might be removing something or adding something, but you're, you're sending ripples through this thing. It's, it's like, it's kind of cool. It's like space becomes thicker. And I, I'm working with a farm or a property like it's a big chunk of Play-Doh rather than this empty void, this box that I'm just sort of putting objects into and taking them out of. <laughs> yes, anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. I think what you did is, is you described the artistic creative process that's alive in, in any art, any craft. Yeah. It, is, it is equal parts you, it is equal parts the material, it's equal parts what you were doing in the day, it's equal parts what was coming in in that conversation, it's equal parts the clay itself, where it came from, the region, the geology behind it. Mm. It's honoring and acknowledging that all of these different threads, these tributaries, if you will, have come together at this one juncture, at this one point mm. that have all come together and are, are now something different. The, the Mississippi is not the headwaters up high in the mountains. It is a different entity altogether. Mm. It has the inherent qualities and characteristics of the headwaters. And only by working with what is not what we think should be there or what uh, somebody else wants to think should be there, which I think is more of the case that we actually yeah. find the solutions that work. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, lo I love that way of thinking about it. So the first, the last question I have for you about this to, to sum it up is I think it'd be very important for people listening to really understand what is your definition of permaculture? So they get a sense of your baseline as you go through all that you're, that you're talking about to get a sense of where that is. So that way they get a sense of your, um, I'm not going to say deviation. I'm going to say you're reworking or you're reweaving or working with the reality that is. So, so Dan, what's, what's your definition of permaculture? Right now, the way I'm thinking about what permaculture is, is something along the lines, and I, I have to acknowledge the conversation I had recently with Carol Sanford and helping me out with this, but it's something around permaculture is designing processes for creating co-evolving relationships between human life and ecosystem health. Yeah, I mean, I do owe Carol a lot for that statement, but it's resonating for me right now. Well, that hits. And then what do you think the definition of it was originally? Or the sentimentality? I'm not saying give me the verbatim, but what do you think it has been, which has caused you to be involved in the work that you've been doing? Well, one thing I want to say is I, I've, I did a bit of work looking at you know, previous definitions. And one, one, one of the common kind of messages I got, I think it had like three parts. One was 
it's about conscious design of nature mimicking systems that meet human needs locally. And that did get me started in the sense of, well, okay, so first bit that they all have in common is conscious design. It's like, okay, so what is the design process and is it conscious? And I was like, well, we don't even know what the process is and no, it's not conscious. So that, that started the, the whole journey. One other definition that's been floating around a fair bit that I quite like is that it's about meeting human needs in an ecosystem enhancing way, something like that. But I'm really enjoy bringing this idea that it's about cultivating the, like get, getting these, these co-evolving processes going, like actually stewarding the beginnings of those, not just setting places up to, to provide needs and enhance the ecosystem, but to actually you know, support, support the, the conversation or a, a deepening relationship between the humans who live in a particular place and the dynamics of that place to, to co-infuse and evolve over time, something like that. Awesome. I think that sets us up well. Dan, I want to thank you for chatting with me today. I've, I've talked to you many times over the last two or three years, and I felt that I was able to get into a headspace to sit in front of Dan and ask him questions from this, the sense of just being in a lot of curiosity with you. And I've, found out a lot more about you than I, I knew. And I'm really grateful for that because I think that initial giddiness that we both felt at the beginning of this conversation played out in the way of two kids learning how to play with each other be like, oh. <laughs> and we already knew we played well together. So, you know, thank you again for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. And um, I look forward to turning the tables around and firing questions at you sometime soon. Turn it around, man. Turn it around. Ready, willing, and able. And that's that. Thanks to Javin for another great chat. Always enjoy the, the camaraderie, the um, common interest in, in deepening, sharing, developing our ideas and practices. And I look forward to turning it around and um, hearing a lot more about Javin's exciting uh, adventures and the, the projects he's part of in the world. Now, I'll give you a bit of an update on what's happening with Making Permaculture Stronger in general, makingpermaculturestronger.net being the place where it all comes together. Well, one thing that's happening is the Patreon membership community is, is going strong. It's at patreon.com slash making permaculture stronger. Uh, every six weeks we have a gathering and last week we, we well, what we do in each gathering is we reflect and bring our awareness, our attention together to some key aspect of any healthy design process and explore some framework and relationship to that. Last week we were we were diving into how we move around inside the parts and holes in anything we're trying to understand, whether we're getting to know better, immersing it, whether it's a newborn baby or a person or an adult or a, a landscape or um, a relationship or anything. And we, we explored this idea of what I call the specting prism, uh, a way of thinking about how we navigate through different um, holes and parts at different levels of resolution and also move into the future and the past as we unpack the uniqueness of any thing or situation. Uh, I just took receipt of a bunch of audio files this morning from Alan Savory, founder of Holistic Management, and I'm really excited to start to um, work with those. I've, we just had a massive email exchange, and he's kindly, because he's got low bandwidth and we can't do it the usual way, he's audio recorded his responses to my questions now I've got those, I'll audio record my questions and then put them all together to, to create some podcast episodes. Really, it was a really beautiful experience. Um, so you can look forward to that coming out soon. I'm really excited to, over the coming months, taking my time as you might have noticed, but just ease into phase two of making permaculture stronger and start to more explicitly explore this question of well, what was permaculture's originating impulse? Because if we are regenerating permaculture design process, and we are, 
then that's inherently requires that we we go back to the the, the core kernel nut essence of what permaculture um, is all about and, and recreate tissue, fresh tissue from there. Um, and, and in our case, we're interested in in creating fresh tissue around permaculture design process where we actually develop something out of permaculture that is in service of permaculture and can authentically and with integrity reflect and um, support permaculture to deliver on its beautiful aspirations as opposed to tacking on um, what I see as lesser and more mechanical design process understandings from, from outside. Anyway, that's um, all part of the course for this year. The Making Permaculture Stronger first book is well underway. And I'm feeling the need to let you get on with your day. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for, for, for your listenership, for your support, for the messages you send. And I will look forward to catching up with you in episode 47. Take care out there in this uncertain, crazy world. Until then, ciao.